Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A budget for rising house prices, London air pollution narrowly misses a peak, gender-neutral toilets targeted in new building regs consultation, a housing historian picked to lead the London School of Architecture, and Camden versus Hackney, the final of the Borough Logos World Cup. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My special guest this week is John Elledge, journalist and author of the upcoming compendium of Not Quite Everything. John, welcome to the show. Hello, very good to be here. Thank you for having me. So the first big story of this week is the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, and he set out his tax and spending plans for the next financial year and beyond. Like every budget, it's been covered widely across the media, with big headlines focusing on things like the corporation tax increase, the continuation of furlough, and a new £100 contactless pay limit. For architects, news of a government economic campus in Darlington and one billion for 45 new town deals will create design work itself, uh, much of that being done in London. Uh, the announcement of new English free ports with tax reliefs and liberalised planning in places like Liverpool and the Thames Estuary could also have some long-term architectural em- implications. But we want to look at housing, which is an area with a massive impact on the built environment, particularly in London, and something we love discussing on this show. While there's no new spending on much-needed public housing in the budget, the Chancellor has extended the stamp duty holiday to June. It was introduced at the start of the crisis and had been due to terminate this month. The holiday cut the rate of stamp duty, it's effectively a sales tax on homes, down to zero for all properties £500,000 or under. And at the time it was hailed as a kind of gift to wannabe homeowners. But it actually drove up the average home price by 8.5%. Therefore, it's something that really helps sellers far more than buyers. Also in the budget, the Chancellor has unwrapped a new 95% mortgage offer for homes worth up to £600,000. This is something that's open to both first-time buyers and those already on the so-called ladder. It effectively resurrects an earlier shelved help-to-buy mortgage guarantee scheme, which, according to Shelter, resulted in a 1.4% house price increase. So what's this all about? Is this effectively a budget for house price increases? I mean, to me, it looks, that's exactly what it looks like. And I don't, I don't even think there's any... There's not really any pretense about that. I mean, a group of people I don't believe came up anywhere in the Chancellor's uh, statement today was, was renters. Um, when when this government is talking about helping 
uh, generation rent. They always frame it entirely in terms of like helping people to get on the ladder. Those 5% mortgages are kind of meant to help out with that. But that's actually, that's still quite a small group. The number of people who can afford 5% of our ridiculously exorbitant house, house prices is, is still going to be a, a, a small number compared to the number of people who would like to be able to do that. So, so my reading of all these policies was basically about keeping the punch ball going round. Um, because if we do get to a point where, where that stops and the housing and the house prices crash, um, that may, in, in the long term, that's probably going to be quite a good thing. But in the short term, that's going to do all sorts of terrible things to the economy uh, with all sorts of unpredictable effects. And if you're a Chancellor of the Exchequer, you probably don't want that happening on your watch, do you? Um, I mean, one of the things we really love on the show is to talk about the kind of deep politics which shapes architecture in the built environment. And so an, an obvious question is, is a budget policy like this one which drives up house prices? Is that a deeply political policy or is this actually something that we could possibly imagine some of the other political parties might have done something a bit similar if they were in this situation i mean i'm going getting uh, old and cynical which is a change from my my previous incarnation as relatively young and cynical um but i i can't imagine uh i mean if just thinking back to when labor in office they they also wanted house prices to go up pretty much continuously um and you know again it's a it's sort of, it's not an irrational thing to do from some perspectives. Like if, if house prices do drop, um, then that's going to have a massive hit on consumer confidence. It's probably, it might also kind of hit some of the banks in a way that, that could be quite bad for the general economy if banks suddenly find they're, they're undercapitalized. Um, so, so the assumption shared by, by really all the parties uh, for a very long time has been that it's better when house prices continue to rise. And that's not, you know, that's not completely crazy because probably still just about a majority of people in this country do kind of want house prices to rise. It's just that we do have this growing group of people who who are kind of shut out of that. And with the decline of social housing and so on, we, we don't, who don't really have any other options to get secure housing. Um, so I, I think it's it's very political in that, you know, Housing is obviously a very political issue, but I don't actually think this was this was a specifically Tory uh, approach to housing. I think probably if we did have a, a Labour government right now, they would probably have done exactly the same or looking a bit sad about it. And, and that is fascinating. And, and certainly like what I'm hearing from you, it's almost like rising house prices is effectively like the kind of stable normal. So rather than just keeping them the same price to keep things normal in this country, we have to keep them rising very slightly and is that a peculiarly british thing with some like some real unintended consequences of what you've just said or um you know is that is that is that is that normal is it um i i don't know how widespread it is i'm going to confess to my ignorance here i know it's not it's not just british it's happened in in a lot of countries i think certainly the other anglo countries um i have seen a similar thing um a lot of uh, Japan's uh, late 20th century prosperity was built on on rising, rising house prices, and the Japanese lost decade. Um, God, imagine only one lost decade. Those are, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Um, that 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 came after a big a big property crash. So it's not. So yeah, it, it's incredibly damaging, but it's also very difficult to work out how we unwind this because so much of the the confidence in in the British economy is is now based on ever rising house prices. I think you know if we could. I came to a conclusion some years ago that probably um, a possibility as a way out of it would be a good old-fashioned wage price spiral, 
Uh, we need a burst of, of inflation so the absolute values don't have to go down. But I think if, like, if, if everyone's wages and the price of everything could kind of double over a period of 10 years, that would, that would probably get some of our problems out of the way. Um, but we are still basically ruled by a generation of politicians who were terrified of inflation because of what it looked like in the 1970s. So I don't think that's going to be government policy anytime soon. So, so sometimes in my dreams, I consider the 400 billion or so that's been spent in response to this crisis so far and, and question whether or not it would be an awful lot less if we actually had proper, healthy uh, sustainable housing that people could live in and self-isolating in a much more sensible way. So it does seem rather like we've, we've probably thrown money at the wrong side of the problem uh, in this crisis. The, the other thing to say is one of the reasons this, this crisis has been so bloody horrible for those of us who live in cities is because the trade-off when you, when you live in a city is like, OK, I will put up with slightly small cramped housing because everything I really want out of life happens outside of my home. You know, the social life, pubs, restaurants, galleries, whatever it may be, it's all out there. Um, and the minute lockdown happens and you no longer have access to those things, suddenly you're kind of making that trade off for nothing. You're just like, well, maybe I should have just lived somewhere bigger with a garden. Um, but we are, we are where we are, aren't we? So just thinking on this, this budget for rising house prices, a lot of people listening to this show potentially work in architecture in the built environment. And a lot of them you know, potentially are just going to be as far away as, as, again, they were from being able to afford a home in London. But the fact that this is going on, is that potentially good news for people who work in the housing industry that implies, employs about 500,000 people in Britain uh, and has been rocked badly by the cladding scandal? So is this a kind of... Um, necessary evil to keep those people in work um i mean insofar as a house price crash would probably put a lot of those people out of work and would also i mean perversely a house price crash could make the housing crisis in the long term harder to solve right because if like if prices fall then the how <laughs> our sort of um mass house building companies stop building until they rise again because of the nonsense of the, the British land market. Um, so I kind of think there is an argument that to get out of this crisis, we probably need them to, at the very least, stay stable while we put some other measures in place. I think the problem is we've had a run of governments that have shown very little interest in putting those other measures in. They kind of just think that if we if prices keep rising, then, then eventually the market will, will solve all ills. And it's become abundantly clear to me, at least, that that's, that's not going to happen. And just a final point before we move on from the budget. There was a big announcement of eight new free ports. If you think about the sort of overvalued nature of London property, could something like free ports maybe even level up other parts of the country at the expense of London? I mean, I, I'm not, I'm really not buying it. It's just, it's one of those things that a certain branch of the Tory party uh, have a sort of fetish for free ports. I don't really understand the point of it. Uh, there was a World Bank report uh, a few years ago which basically found that all the all the research supporting them was complete and utter nonsense. Like, Freeports, it found Freeports have a limited economic impact. Um, the best case scenario is you can kind of take an area where the economy is rubbish and bring it up to the national average. Uh, those improvements only really come at the very start of the process, and you're not getting it over a wide geographical area. The, the overspill effects are, are pretty limited. So, so turning, I, I haven't actually looked at the, the full details, but turning the Tees Valley or Thurrock into Freeports is, is not going to 
sort out the economy of the whole of the North East or, or Southern Essex or whatever it is, it might just kind of drag a little bit more activity into those places over the short term. Um, but I don't think it's going to be generating the kind of uh, high value service jobs that we kind of really want to be creating in this country. Our second item is something that would have been widely covered in the London Evening Standard, BBC Local News, if it hadn't have been for the rain. Wednesday was predicted to see high levels of air pollution across London and the southeast, something that would have typically resulted in a mayoral alert being issued. It would have marked the highest air pollution level this year and certainly the worst it's been since bonfire night in November. Blamed for driving this expected peak uh, was fumes from the continent and also Saharan dust. That's something that's quite common around this time of year and it causes intense sunrises and sunsets that some of us might have enjoyed. If it wasn't for Wednesday's rain, which thankfully cleared the air, things would have been pretty bad. Research by the Environmental Defence Fund estimates that 4,000 Londoners every year die due to air pollution, and it's also a cause of a raft of other problems. A recent report by the same group has also found that people from a BAME background or living in the most deprived areas in London experience significantly higher levels of toxic pollution. John, what's this all about? Can we just blame the weather, or should we be looking at the fact that about 70% of baseline inner London air pollution comes from things like buildings, construction and traffic? It's, the weather obviously is a huge a huge factor but but it's it's obviously not the not the cause of, of London's air pollution problems um, I mean as, as I understand it a, a big contributor is actually just um, the sheer number of, of buses that we have in this city uh, this this thing that you know you normally think would be a fantastic thing that we're kind of we're so, we have so many buses they're so well used um, is is a huge contributor to our air pollution problem I mean I remember the two, two of the, the most polluted uh, roads in, in the city are, are Putney High Street and Brixton Hill rather than here in the central town and it's because they are just these massive bus corridors with buildings either side that means that there's kind of at canyons where the, the pollution can't escape um so it is, you know, obviously the, the, the it's, it's very exciting to know that our, our our climate is being affected by by the Sahara Desert uh, in its way. Um, but but our our problems are, are sadly much broader than that. Uh, absolutely, and, and certainly the Environmental Defence Fund itself, in in their reports, they're calling for things like red routes to be abolished and also for emissionless buses. So that's very much on the spot. But we, we've just been talking about house price increase and like London, if, if the air in London is so toxic, why on earth is the property worth so much? And also, why can't any of this kind of immense wealth be used to actually fix this problem? Um, I mean, the property in London is expensive because there is an enormous amount of... Uh, economic activity going on here. I think if 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 the entire city of London up sticks and moves to Amsterdam uh, because of Brexit, then then that would probably sort out London's house prices from one perspective. Um, but also, I suppose some of its path dependency is like people keep pouring money into London property because they always have, and it's not been a bad bet so far. Um, that could that could change quite quickly if if there was a crash. Um, I think it's just not a it's not a big enough factor, is it? I mean, people don't tend to think of I suspect on those very, very polluted corridors, I suspect if you kind of look at a comparison between Putney High Street and some of the back streets, I suspect there is a, you will get a discount on the ones on the high street itself. Um, because because it's so polluted and so visibly polluted. But, but not something we've seen in estate agent windows yet. 
uh, although maybe maybe something for the future. I mean, just thinking about you know, through this COVID crisis, we've seen a real shift in, uh, you could say, priorities. You know, there is more political and economic attention given to things like public health, which sadly, frankly, in previous decades had been absent. And, you know, death rates had been rising, for example, uh, in a country like Britain. So, I mean, do you think that possibly a kind of longer term impact of this is that we might have a bit more focus on this sort of thing and sort of look at the kind of built environment configuration of a city of London, which means that poorer people and people from BAME backgrounds are more impacted by air pollution? Or is that just utopian? I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound too depressing. My instinct is that's pretty utopian. Um, because, I mean, you may, it might, it might, there might be more of this on the kind of wonkish policy level. Um, and also, it is worth noting that, this, that, that London's air pollution has actually improved the last few years. It's been going in the right direction. Um, which, you know, it's been getting a hell of a lot worse over a period of years. The last three or four, it has been getting better again um, for, for all sorts of reasons. But I don't, I don't necessarily think we're going to get to a point where, where, where the, the relationship between the built environment and air pollution is a major topic of public debate because it just gets into that territory. It's a little bit wonkish, a little bit technical. Um, I, I am I'm teetering on the edge of my knowledge here, and I've been writing about the, the built environment for several years. Um, I suspect getting getting the general public to take an interest in it to the extent that that will act as a sort of uh, that will put pressure on, on our political leaders is that's that's not going to happen, is it? Um, but that doesn't mean that there can't be productive conversations between between the industry and policymakers. I mean, do do the tools actually exist in London's government or local? government to bring about this, this sort of change at the spare the scale and speed that it's needed or is it is it something that can only really happen from a, like a high level political intervention um i i don't entirely know i lack confidence that that our, our political system is set up uh well to move quickly on these things i keep thinking of um uh the, the i think it was the ta- licensed taxi drivers association that put in a legal challenge um, to some of the, the cycle routes that were rolled out in, in fairly quickly last spring. Um, the LTTA uh, successfully uh, uh, challenged those in court because they haven't been the full consultation process, which is, you know, that's a pain in the ass, isn't it? It's like, can't, taxi drivers should not be getting a say on where, ta- on, on where cycle routes go. Uh, but under our current political system, they do. Um, but I think the reason, you know, a reason these things are difficult is not just because of those political structures it's because the the people who think they're going to lose out from these sort of changes uh, such as the motorist lobby tend to be quite loud and visible uh, whereas often the people who stand to benefit from them are you know there's more of them but more diffuse the less active that is maybe starting to change a little bit thanks to things like social media um, but I, I think it's probably still going to be a while before before politicians are, are more scared uh, for the cyclist lobby, for example, than they are of drivers. I, I think we will see more stuff like, you know, green walls, for example. Um, you know, things built into the the architecture, that are features built into the architecture of a building that are there in part to help clean the air and because being seen to help clean the air is probably something that will add a premium to a building, maybe. I can see more of that. I am not currently concerned that we're going to turn into Mega City One and all be trapped inside and on pain of being shot by a police officer. Um, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm terrible at predictions, so who the hell knows? Our third story is about a government consultation over future changes to the building regulations which could limit architects' ability to create gender-neutral toilets in the future. 
The government says, quote, there needs to be a proper provision of gender specific toilets for both men and women with a clear steer in building standards guidance. It also claims, quote, a trend towards the removal of well-established male-only, female-only spaces has left women at a significant disadvantage in recent years. But writing in the Architects' Journal in the AJ, Tatiana Whitting of the union United Voices of the World, Section of Architectural Workers, has called on architects to object to the proposed new rules. Whitting says, Disaggregated toilets offer numerous benefits. They introduce parity in waiting times, make make toilet trips easier for carers and those with children, and have even been found to reduce bullying in schools. They also significantly reduce the level of scrutiny, harassment and aggression that many in the LGBTQ plus community, particularly transgender and non-binary people, often face in segregated facilities. Open City has also issued its own statement criticising the government for, quote, stirring up animosity towards minority communities, spreading disinformation and playing politics with essential public conveniences. It says that every household in the country already has a gender-neutral toilet in their own home for use by family members and guests without any segregation. So the idea that gender-neutral loos are unusual is quite simply farcical. John, what's this all about? Is it a genuine attempt to improve toilet provisions? Or is this just an example of politicians waging culture wars, this time by way of building regulations? My, My suspicion, based on having been watching this government for a number of years is I can't think of a time that they were trying to that they were genuinely trying to improve anything. Um, I, I think it is it is a good first it is a good it is a good assumption about reality that they are probably trying to spark culture, cultural nonsense at any at any one time. We do have a huge issue with with public toilets in this country that has been revealed by by lockdown, which is you know they have been basically privatized over over a period of decades. Uh, and so it's been, you know, it's been basically fine that there aren't huge numbers of public toilets anymore because if you caught you, you can nip into a pub or a station or, or, or you know, a restaurant or something. There are other options. Um, once everything closed, it became clear that, you know, those were really your only options. And suddenly there are a lot of people whose movement was, was massively limited in the way it hadn't been before. There is a real problem here that the government could be addressing. It's not addressing that one. It is the whole thing sort of sounds a little bit like a dog whistle to me. So certainly, in the in the Open City statement, for example, it highlights the fact that um, spending on public toilets by local authorities in England has declined by fifty percent in the last decade. Around seven hundred of those lavatories have closed since twenty ten, but also seventy four percent of the public are now saying uh, there's not enough toilets in their area, which like uh, obviously totally supports what you're saying there, um, and it kind of begs the question. If you look at the number of new toilets that are constructed every year and put into service as public cities, that is pretty small compared to the vast number of ones that are already there. So you know, why the government is focusing on the new ones uh, is, is a bit of a mystery. They think that this is the kind of thing that is going to get, uh, that's going to get a certain section of their voters riled. Uh, and you can kind of imagine a minister commenting on this. Uh, probably using the word woke at some point. I just don't think that I just do not feel like this is this is a huge issue facing the country right now. Um, so I suspect that it is it is being talked about in government purely um, because they think it might get their voters fired up. But also, it's not being talked about that much in government. Is it? I suspect they're kind of like it's a fishing exercise, isn't it? They're seeing if anyone bites. Um, but I don't. I do not 
believe for a moment that they are genuinely worried about the the, the social impact of, of unisex toilets. I'm just not buying it. And so this is a consultation on building regulations. And what building regulations do is they effectively kind of bake in stuff into future architecture. You know, that if this thing goes ahead and it is put into force in the way that is suggested, you know, that would be an impact on future design. But obviously the sort of question begs the question of so many other things we've discussed in the show, like, for example, clean air, which could be baked into future design, or, for example, an affordability of housing. You know, is, is, is there sort of bigger priorities with more broader benefits to society that are being overlooked on this occasion? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are, but this is, this, is surely, um, this is surely something that can be said of anything in the, in the world of the built environment that, that you guys work in, in that it's, you know, stuff is not built for a period of, of one or two parliamentary terms. It is there for decades. Um, a lot of the public toilets, but even now, some of the public toilets we, we, we still rely on uh, were built by the Victorians. Um, so one would expect that the decisions about the built environment that are made today to be something that is still affecting uh, the city and the world we're living in uh, for, for a very long time. Um, but yeah, so I, th- I think that is certainly a danger in introducing cultural nonsense in that the government may be trying to do, uh, may be doing it for, for quite cynical reasons, but it is going to be affecting uh, generations still to, still to be born. And also, just you know, your experience, you know, if you if you've been or witnessed or experienced any kind of new toilet facilities that have been created in new architecture, do you get the impression that ministers are the ones who are best to make the decisions, or do you get the impression maybe it's the architects and designers who made it a success, or the communities who are engaged in creating this new facility? I mean, just do, do ministers not have anything better to do? Yeah. <laughs> it's my it's my thing. Like you know, we're in the middle of like a once in a century economic crash, a once in a century pandemic, Brexit. Remember that? That's still only a few weeks old at, at this point. You think that maybe they would find something else to occupy the time, um, and the fact that this is this is getting any play in 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 uh, Whitehall and Westminster at all suggests to me that that there is something quite cynical going on but you know maybe 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 not maybe maybe we're being terribly unfair to our beloved political masters our fourth story was covered in the AJ and pretty much across the entire architectural media it's such a big deal it's all about architectural historian and interwar housing specialist Neil Chassaw being named as the next head of the London School of Architecture the LSA So architectural education has for a number of years been all about forms of social entrepreneurialism, about creating new business models and new ways of operating which redefine what it is to be an architect. So, for example, public practice. That went to architectural students and it said, don't do the normal thing going and working for a private sector architecture firm. Why not go work in the public sector and be part of a revolutionary shift in how the whole system works? Or you could look at Central St. Martin's Architecture School, and that said to students, don't think of yourself as a designer of buildings. Instead, see yourself as a community activist. Use architecture and design as a kind of campaigning tool. Or you could look at Neil's immediate predecessor at the LSA, Will Hunter, and his pitch to students was, don't go out there and start an architecture practice in the conventional sense. Instead, think of yourself as an entrepreneur a market disruptor, something like Uber or Airbnb, and think about how you can redefine architecture model uh, of business for the future. 
But now, look, we've got Neil, who's just been appointed to this role, and he's a serious historian. Uh, he's a meticulous researcher. He's hugely well-read expert in one of the heydays of British housing design. Um, and possibly possibly that signals a different approach here. Um, maybe it's an approach which isn't about tearing up the business model of architecture. It's not about starting from scratch. Um, but what it's possibly saying is... Um, Maybe we need to study and understand what is good about what's been built in the past and apply that knowledge to contemporary practice. Something which is less whizzy, maybe something that's a bit more straightforward. Um, John, I mean, do you think a focus on this kind of housing model, does that does that suggest that the, the design community is, is building up for a similar spirit of house building to what we saw in that interwar period? All, the, all this very interesting stuff you're saying is making me think of is... Um... Uh, oh, what's it? Municipal Dreams, the book by John Bowton on the history of, of uh, social housing in this country, which is a very, very uh, good and incredibly readable book, um, considering uh, potentially quite a dry, a dry topic. Something that really brought home for me is that there was that post-war period where if you were, if you were an architectural designer and you wanted to have an impact on, on the world, you would go work for a council and you would build council housing. And that is a very, very different uh, world and a very different prospect from the one we live in now. Um, I do think perhaps it would be, uh, through, through no fault of the architecture profession, by the way, that has changed. I'm not in any way under the illusion that it's because they all decided they wanted private money that the world, the world, the world has changed. Um, but, but I do wonder from everything you've just said uh, whether, uh, you know, if, if we did have some future government... Um, that did decide that we needed to invest in public housing once again. Whether this, the 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 the, the appointment you describe is is the beginning of that story, perhaps. And I think obviously just stepping back, sort of beyond architecture and architecture education, just thinking about society more broadly. Um, you know, there there has been a kind of recent infatuation with the disruptor mantra and you know if, if this was 10 years ago uh, we would probably unequivocally be impressed uh, by that kind of thing whereas you know now we possibly think of disruptors as people who've stolen all of our data and lined their pockets with bitcoins uh, and left us all just as impoverished as we were at the beginning of this story um do you think you know, you know broadly are people more interested in building sort of state sustainable equitable communities uh, across society uh, as a result of the experiences we've had over the last decade? I mean, I, I would hope so. I mean, I think what we've really learned over the last decade is that, you know, the, uh, the, disruptor, the disruptor mantra of move fast and break things, well, what happens if you follow that path is that all your things get broken. Um, and that's not, that's not really ideal, is it? Um, I do kind of feel like there has been a, a shift in, in society-wide attitudes towards um, the question of what we what we owe to each other and and the que and, and uh, questions about um, responsibility you know social responsibility is kind of back on the table um, I don't think that has yet filtered down to the level of, of politics uh, but it is certainly a part of the conversation now in a way I don't think it was 10 15 years ago so maybe we are finally finally going to see some turn away from the factory consensus we've all been living under our entire lives um, but you know we, we, we can but hope and, and with that in mind, and obviously you know, respecting your manifold interests, which are in your upcoming publication, what would you like to see the next generation of architects be doing differently? Um, you know, what would you do if you were running an architecture school, for example? Because I, I, I sort of everything I look at in, in my work is kind of upstream of that. And I don't think architects are necessarily the ones to blame for any of the work, the problems in the built environment. I think, as with uh, everyone else in the, working in that sector, 
they are responding to um, to the kind of the, the, the price signals and policies set by 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 governments and major corporations. Um, so I do not think that a lot of the problems we face in in the built environment in this country today are things that can necessarily be solved through better architecture education. I think we need better planning law. Um, or, or maybe breaking up some of the big house builders or something. But I think it's those kind of things that will actually... Sort of, I, I have no idea what to suggest in terms of things that actual architects can do. It's just, it's way out of my pay grade, I'm afraid. I think you made a, good, I think you made a pretty good stab at it. Uh, <laughs> okay, so um, our fifth and last item concerns the Borough Logos World Cup which has now reached its final round. Camden and Hackney are vying for the crown in the competition run by the Open House Twitter account. The winner will be announced on Thursday afternoon. With Camden's circular logo representing four pairs of clasped hands and Hackney's abstracted H, there really is everything to play for. Uh, It's World Cup, like many others held on Twitter, which has engaged wide audiences in what might otherwise have been a very obscure topic. Um, thousands more followers have signed up along the way and a roster of leading politicians and mayors have weighed in on residents calling for them to show their loyalty clearly only the people of Twitter can decide um, John, what do you think about this? What, are you impressed that it's, it's come down to Hackney and Camden in the end? My, my, my rather cynical suspicion about these things is often you get people voting um, not for their favourite logo or their favourite uh, whatever it is they, they tend to vote for the places they like and live. Uh, so like you will notice that Hackney is one of those boroughs that does come up a lot in the later rounds of, of this kind of thing. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure that's because of uh, whatever Hackney's done. Rather, I think it may be because a lot of Twitter users uh, live in Hackney. But all that, that cynicism aside, I'm looking at it now. I didn't, I didn't ever notice that the Camden logo is is four pairs of hands. And that's actually rather lovely. Um, so, so, you know, despite the fact that my, my personal loyalty would be to Hackney, I think I would personally vote for Camden there. Um, my only other thought on, on borough logos more broadly is I grew up in, in uh, Havering out on London's east of, eastern fringe at the point where it had uh, its logo was sort of a castle in the shape of letter H and the reason this stays with me is because there was not a castle in Havering there, is to the, there has, to the best of my knowledge, never been a castle in Havering. I can't for the life of me imagine how it is that anyone decided that that was what the logo should be. Um, but that's really the, one of the, the less confusing things about my own borough. So there we are. Yes, it, it does certainly seem like the, um, the young homeowners on Twitter of Hackney have made their voice heard. Oh, don't go to war with Hackney on the podcast, so you'll, you'll hear about it. You will never hear the end. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that, will, that will hit the cutting room floor. But um, certainly if we look at those two logos, they're quite striking, like the Camden one with the hands clasped. And it, actually, I only got that when I read about it online, then did a double take on it. Um, they both come from the 1960s. And so in the final round, we've got two 1960s kind of cool, modernist, abstracted logos. You know, all of those, those old crests and castles and what have you have all been pushed to the side i mean is that is that a kind of a hint at where you know what people like in terms of design maybe maybe some of these the city of london needs to have a rethink and get a bit abstract i mean i think the 60s was a great period for design generally wasn't it when you can think of the furniture and the clothes and so on so i don't think it should necessarily surprise us that it would that 60s logos would be would be doing well in a competition like this um I don't know if the City of London needs to reconsider its logo. I do think as a society it would be good if we considered the existence of the City of London because it's an extremely odd organisation with with a ridiculously subsidised bar 
um, and no fin- and very limited financial transparency. Um, and yes, it is um, still technically a council, a municipal landlord, among other things. And I think we should show them. Uh, we should show them that we're living in a new a new time. You can't really just kind of. Uh, merge the public and private money in the way they sometimes do and I think to, to really teach them a lesson about the world we live in now we should just absorb uh, the city of London into Tower Hamlets as a Tower Hamlets resident I'm well up for that sadly I'm all the way off in Wandsworth and there's no chance of a city Wandsworth fusion look as someone someone who's who's invested some time in Twitter over the years I mean you have an impressive 39.9 thousand following I mean that is that is epic I mean, is it, is it quite a powerful thing that a medium like Twitter has engaged so many people in, in a very niche topic like this and can do so on other similar niche topics? Um, so, so I think not, not Twitter is a, is, a, is a big example of this, but I think social media more generally has made it possible for people to find uh, people who share quite niche interests in a way that, that wasn't true even in you know, the days of the Usenet messaging boards or whatever it was. Um, you can now have people interested in much more niche things can still find each other. And stuff like this, the, the World Cup of, of uh, London Borough logos, is a very positive uh, manifestation of that. The less positive manifestation is that you know people who now believe that the Earth is flat, for example, can also find each other um, and can start having conferences and doing weird things in the world. Um, so I do, I do think there is... Um, there is a downside to that kind of ability to find people who share your niche interests. But I think stuff like stuff like this is just lovely. One of the things I find when I go on Twitter, and I think it's extremely powerful and interesting, is that I often go on and I see people I know and like rowing with each other and it makes me a bit sad and I kind of worry about the future of the built environment. And I think, is Twitter a good medium for built environment discourse? It, what do you think? I mean, I think it's a terrible medium for a lot of discourse. But um, on the other hand... Like I've, in, in all seriousness, like I found Twitter an incredibly useful medium in terms of um, I've made a lot of professional contacts there. It's been really good for my, uh, for, for me as a writer. It's going to help build up a following. I've made a lot of friends there. Twitter was the first time it became possible to speak to um, the audience of titles I was working for and uh, you know and 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 other journalists and meet colleagues and meet uh, meet editors for whom I could later pitch stories and so on. It's been an incredibly positive thing for me personally, uh, which is why, as you say, I've invested rather rather a lot of time in there down the years. Um, But it's clearly paid off. I mean, yes, hopefully, yes. Um, So maybe Twitter is good then. Okay, maybe I can just say Twitter is good. So so architects, aspiring architects listening, keep on the Twitter, right? I mean, I, I... I reckon, yeah, I think genuinely, I think it is still a good environment for meeting colleagues and sharing ideas and arguing with colleagues and calling them all sorts of names because you don't like their ideas. But nonetheless, you know, it's it's a good way of kind of building a network. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm one of the last people on earth who is still actually quite pro Twitter. Um, so yes, I would definitely say people listening, if you're not on there, um, I think it is probably worth checking out. Sorry. I have to say I'm with you on that because I'm pretty terrified about what it's going to look like when the professional classes get on TikTok. <laughs> when I was still on staff at the New States when they did, uh, I was in the New States when TikTok Christmas special um, and I was at that point, I think, 39 years old. Um, 
So, so I think I might be, I might possibly be the oldest person ever to have been on TikTok. But that was, that was fun. Well, John, it's been an immense pleasure to have you on the Lundown this week. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you can come along again soon and uh, share more punditry with us. Uh, where can listeners uh, get a bit more info about what you're up to, especially uh, your new upcoming publication? Okay, well, I'm very glad you asked. So, yeah, I'm, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I'm at John Elledge, J-O-W-N-E-L-L-E-D-G-E. Uh, my 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 first book is the compendium of not quite anything that will be published by Headline Books in September. There is there is a second book I'm currently co-writing, but which is still very secretive. Um, but most importantly, I have also recently uh, joined the the many many desperate jo- unemployed journalists who who've launched a Substack, which is called the uh, in, a, in, a, in a, a piece of brand synergy I've called it the newsletter of not quite everything, um, in which I cover you know politics, urbanism transport, housing, and general nerdery, whatever else happens to interest me that week. But if, if someone is kind of familiar with my, my oeuvre, um, it kind of runs the whole gamut of that. And I would very much like you to sign up. Thank you. And it sounds exactly the sort of thing London listeners are going to want in their inbox. Thanks again, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to The London, a new show from Open City, exploring the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. You can tweet at the show using the hashtag London. L-N-D-D-W-N or at Open City London. We want to hear what you think, what you want us to be discussing in the show next week. Open City is a charity dedicated to making London more open, accessible and equitable. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.